Hello, hello. My name is April Malone with Yes and Work From Home, and this is the podcast. Today, I have Catherine Spinney with me, with me from Baltimore, Maryland. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, we have, oh, your kitty came. She, you said that she it. doesn't. <laughs> she has a sense. As soon as record gets hit, she just knows it. <laughs> you got a black kitty. That's so fun. Yeah. Um, so, Catherine, you have been working from home for the pandemic or beyond that? Why don't you go ahead and just tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're doing it? Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you to your audience for listening in. Uh, I have been working from home before the pandemic, but the virtual side of working from home really shifted during the pandemic uh, previously. So I am working from home, like you said, in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts. I've lived a little bit of here, there, and everywhere in between, but I've been in Baltimore just over four years, and I've been working from home the entire time. Uh, And what I do is I uh, have put all of my experience and passion and education into supporting struggling supervisors to help them become thriving leaders, because that was my own experience and background. And I'm very passionate about helping making other people's experience easier than mine was. And I mostly do my work in the nonprofit space. So Before the pandemic, I was doing my work from home, but then was going out in my training, in my coaching, in my program evaluation, in my teaching. I was going physically out to do the work and Mm -hmm. then would come back and do my prep and my follow-up from home. So I I did still consider that working from home. And then of course, like most other folks, once the pandemic hit, I transitioned to 100% from home and also 100% percent virtual. So the presentations part is probably the biggest change for you because if you're doing your trainings in person, now all of a sudden you're doing it on a digital platform. Yeah, and it it you know, I think initially the thinking and I think I'm not alone here was okay, we'll just take what we were doing in person and put it in front of a computer. And I think we realized pretty early on this it doesn't work that way. Like this is an entirely different process and people's ability to sit in a room with other people is really different than sitting on a computer and being engaged uh, like this, like you and I are right now. Mm -hmm. And so it was a huge learning process, uh, particularly because I was very hesitant to be on video. I was, it was really not a direction I wanted to go in. And then I was in a place where I was forced to do this. So here I am. And, um, and, and one thing that I think has come full circle now that we are, 16 months later, wherever we are in this, is um, there are differences doing this virtually. But in the beginning, I was trying to do a lot of the bells and whistles of let's use all these different sort of things to keep it engaging. And what I've learned over time is there are some necessary differences to virtual life and virtual presenting, but a lot of the principles are the same and we shouldn't be using bells and whistles just for the sake of using bells and whistles if they're not contributing to the learning. 
you know, like I'm trying to prove to you that I am tech savvy, yes. but honestly it can come off. It's kind of like back in the day when people would do PowerPoint presentations and they'd have all those like weird whizzing and turning and spinning transitions. And like, uh, yeah, we all learned pretty quick that that was just annoying. So well, what bells and whistles are you talking about? Uh, so I think a lot of it, um, especially in a training sense, it was a lot of, of course, wanting people to be engaged. And so it was different versions of using surveys and quizzes and the gamification of it. Uh, and so like Kahoot became really popular <laughs> with quizzing and we used, you know, Mentimeter and Slido and, and all these different things that really ultimately accomplish the same things we could be doing in the presentation or in the Zoom. And what I found too was we were losing a lot of people. Every time we asked them to click on something that took them out of the room, sometimes we never got them back or they were just mm. really discombobulated. And I heard it once because so much of my background in nonprofit work is with youth. So I work with a lot of programs, especially after school programs. And I remember someone saying once, we're, we want to engage our kids, but we're not here to entertain them. And I, that just really resonated with me with adults too. Like if these bells and whistles are keeping them engaged, at, then that's great. But if we're just trying to be entertainers, that's not really why we're here. So I, I try to keep that in mind. Well, I think that even just learning Zoom, like just how to get into Zoom and how to not screw it up has been um, a, a big learning curve. Now, obviously people who are working in like a virtual setting or online um, home office type things probably already familiar with Zoom, but there's so many people that never needed to use computers mm -hmm. in their daily life until the past year. Um, I'm thinking about my own family members and we started doing a weekly Zoom call with, you know, my brothers and sisters and my mom. My dad doesn't usually make it. Um, he'll kind of be in the background and listening, I think. But um, that was a huge thing. And to get them each week, you know, to log in, my mom would almost always and she's not even that old. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, mom, if you're listening. <laughs> um, I don't even know if my mom listens to my podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, um, you know, showing up each week usually needed to have some teenager in the house because I'm the oldest of 10 kids. So there's a ton of like, there's a wide range of kids in our family. I'm the oldest. Um, and my baby sister is 17. So, you know, a little bit more tech savvy, I think. But um, my mom almost needed help or almost always needed help just to log in. And then not only to log in, but also to be able to get her camera and her audio working. Mm -hmm. And it usually took several different people to help her to get to that point. I think she's more used to it now after a year and a half or so, um, or 16 months, as you said. Yeah. Well, for my kid's birthday, I think we have been doing Zoom meetings for about nine months and my kid has a birthday in December. And we were going to try to do a different platform so that it could be more interactive. Um, we used GatherTown mm -hmm. and we were going to do birthday party with that. And we wanted the family members to also come. And my 25 year old brother at the time reached out to me and he's like, yeah, <laughs> this mm -hmm. is overwhelming to the yeah. family, you know, that you changed things. Like it's hard enough for us to use the one that you've already been doing. We finally figured it out. Um, especially, you know, for certain members of the family, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, please don't switch it on us. We're not gonna, you know, it didn't go well. The people that we are, you know, you, 
GatherTown works really well on a computer with people who have um, a certain level of patience. <laughs> um, GatherTown lets you kind of work, and I've talked about it a few times in the past, and I can never remember the name of it. And today I'm so happy that I remembered. So I'm going to keep saying GatherTown, GatherTown. Is it gather.town? It lets you have kind of like um, an office experience or like even conferences where you basically mill around and you can hear and talk to the people close to you. Mm-hmm. And as your icon, you know, your avatar, whatever walks around, you can enter a closed room. You can sit down mm-hmm. at a table and only talk to the people at the table. It's kind of cool yeah. um, for people who have computers and are tech savvy um, and have the patience, you know, for the glitches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we lost a lot of people for that one because it doesn't work well or it didn't. Maybe they have the app up now, but it didn't work well for people on tablets or um, phones, mm-hmm. which is most people actually. Well, and I and one of the things, you know, I still joke all this time later, I've made every mistake you can make on Zoom until <laughs> I make the next one. And, and this was probably almost a year in, I was trying to share a document in the chat And people kept saying, it's not in there. I can't see it. It's not in there. And I'm looking at it and half the people are saying they see it and half them didn't. And I learned if you're on, I don't remember if it's just tablets or tablets and phones, or maybe it was just iPhones, but there's some device that cannot see when you share documents in chat. So then it was Mm. adjusting to that. And, And I think one thing that I've learned that I think is helpful as we continue to work from home, I chose. So very early on in this, I had a little familiarity with Zoom before the pandemic, but through different contracts and presentations, I presented through Zoom, through GoToMeeting, through Teams, through WebEx, but all the big ones. And so if I didn't have a choice, then I used whatever the platform was, but I started with my own stuff. And when I had the ability to say, can I do this on my own Zoom? I decided to focus on that one platform and just say, I want to learn as much as I possibly can about Zoom. I've self-titled myself as a Zoom master, even though that's not a thing, but I really got comfortable with it. And when I do conferences and I always ask, can I control my own slides? I just want to be in charge of everything. I think it's distracting every time you say next slide, next slide, next slide. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, it, maybe that doesn't work for everyone, but for me, it really helped to say, excuse me, this is the platform that I'm going to invest in yeah. financially and also with my time and just learn it really well. And if I have to be on someone else's platform, I'll do the best I can. But as you're family shared, it's just so much to try and learn all the pieces of all of them. Right. Um, and I find that even with zoom, it depends on which computer you're on, which if I'm on my phone versus my computer, um, even if I'm logged in, I found out this yesterday, I was having a meeting with the, um, with someone who helps me with some of my editing sometimes. And I was in the past, um, they usually controlled the zoom and I would, you know, request to share my screen. And lately I've been hosting. Um, well, I usually use a scheduled meeting and I think that my scheduled meeting settings are a little bit different from my personal meeting settings. So like, you know how you just have like your personal ID that you can just go in anytime and just really Mm -hmm. easy click. Um, well, we were using that one and I was like, where on earth is the feature where I can give you remote access. So Mm -hmm. you can use my 
control my mouse. I could not find it. And I'm like, I know it's here. We've used it before. Where is it? And I realized we just entered the meeting a different way than usual. And so like mm-hmm. the, the setting somewhere, I'm like, I can't see the same things in the, in the menu bar. Where are they? And I, and I feel like I've known zoom. Well, you know, I've also helped host meetings. Have you ever done the thing before where you pass control? You're like, you have a co-host and you're like, okay, thank you. You're going to take over. I'm heading out. And then you end the meeting. Mm, for yes. everybody. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've done that at least twice, I think. Yeah. And everyone is like, where did the meeting go? She just yeah. thought she was leaving. But, um, and then like what happened is I didn't pass over the full hosting responsibility to the other person. Cause you can't do that if you're not the host. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've done yeah. it all too. <laughs> and, and we've experienced this as people who are very comfortable with that platform. And yeah. so, you know, to put ourselves back in the shoes of our users, of whoever's on that meeting or that training or that what, whatever it is that we're doing to really try to appreciate how, how uncomfortable it is to be sitting there. And, you know, I, I try not to do this but I catch myself doing it sometimes where I know everybody knows how to. And it might be the case where everybody does except one or two people and you've really alienated them and you've really dissuaded them for, from asking for help because you've made this blanket statement of like, it's just so easy or everybody knows this. So I do try to be careful with that language. Uh, one thing that I have found is a little helpful is... Um... Like, for instance, I, I host a meeting. Usually we have 20 to 30 people, 20, 25 people most weeks. And I host it every other week. Um, and then I'll take over, you know, if, if ever necessary, I'll co-host with the other person and take turns. Uh, but I know that that community that comes in usually aren't tech savvy people. They don't need computers for their work. Their, um, livelihood is, you know, with their hands. Mm-hmm. And so when I create like the Facebook, um, event for this, um, recurring meeting, I just have this kind of longer paragraph. If this is your first time using zoom, mm-hmm. here's a few notes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I duplicate that event for each recurring meeting, it follows and that's helpful. And I think it just is a few, like, um, maybe not even housekeeping, but just like best practices, like try to stabilize your computer. Don't walk around because that's mm. people ill. I have made my mother barf, mm. like actually vomit. <laughs> <laughs> like it's actually happened. I think maybe more than once. Mm. Um, you know, some people are very sensitive to that motion. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually the last time it happened, it, it was, I was screen sharing and I kind of forgot that she might be, you know, sensitive to the motion of me just like scrolling up and down and across a few tabs because I was trying to help her reserve a hotel room um so I was like doing my like okay let's find the best deal kind of thing and like using different platforms and she's like I gotta go (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so um best practices would be like um, you know, staying muted unless you're talking, but sometimes if you are in a quiet environment and it's a back and forth thing, you know, it's fine if you don't have to mute every single time I've seen that happen too. So yeah. What about you? Well, I, I think one thing I found in general is, um, making things as easy as possible for other people. So as a business owner, it's important for my business, but just as a human being to be thoughtful. So uh, my family's not quite as big as yours, but I do have a big family and we're all spread out. And we were in this rhythm 
for a while, every Saturday, we'd get together and do this online trivia and we'd all play together. And it was the same Zoom link every week. And so every week, at least someone would say, where's the link? I can't find the link. What's the path? And I kept saying, it's the same thing every week. We've been doing this for months. And then I realized people are just juggling so much right now. And I think of my sister, for example, who was home, who had five kids home doing uh, virtual schooling and five different teachers and passwords and, you know, and just trying to keep all that stuff straight. And so I, I think a good lesson that came out for me in terms of supporting people that I'm working with is just making everything as simple as humanly possible is getting away from, and I think this is a good management tip too, is getting away from the like, I already told you that, or I already sent that. And it's like, I'm sure you did. And I got 35 emails since then, or I thought I saved it here. We've all been in that position. So what one of the things uh, where this really uh, worked, I think for folks I was working with, one of the things I adjusted during the pandemic is I started creating virtual courses because, again, I had to do everything online and uh, it was self-paced. I have some great courses up there. I'll, I'll talk about those later. Uh, but once a week, we would meet as a group to talk about the material and, and answer questions and that sort of thing. Same deal. It was the same link every week. And every single week, one of the students would say, where's the link? I can't get in. I can't. And so then I just realized sending it out as a meeting invite and having the link in there. When I send a reminder email that morning, have the link in there. Um, in the actual course itself, put the link in there. Like, Just make it as easy as possible for people so that um, one, again, as a business person, they can find you and they can get what they're looking for from you. But just being a supportive person, not making people do the searching. And in many cases, if they're anything like me, probably give up after a while and yeah. say, well, I did want to see that online something, but I can't find the link or, I, I, you know, and, and now I'm just not going to go. Yeah. I've experienced that a few times when I wanted to watch, like someone was going to go live on Facebook, but they yes. announced it in a group, but they have to go live on their page. And it's like, yes. where on earth are you? I I'm here. Mm -hmm. It's time. Where are you? Um, with the whole, whole link thing I have, it's a little difficult when I'm sharing like the hosting responsibilities with someone else. Cause we're all, there's three of us and they were all using a different zoom account. And so the mm -hmm. links are going to be different each week. And so I am trying to make sure that they're in the day of, at least, you know, I don't like to put zoom links out too far in advance just for security and safety reasons, mm -hmm. but I'll usually say, don't forget, you know, a screenshot of where they can find the events tab because mm -hmm. people, you know, on your phone or your computer, you know, and like, you might have to scroll to the right to find the events tab and each week, you know, so like, if you can continue to educate them of where they can find it, but here's the link to make it easy. Um, it's a little tricky when they become so reliant on you always providing it for them. Cause yeah. if you didn't that one time, like I have people that would private message me be like, where's the link? And I'm like, same place it always is, but yes, yes. you know, <laughs> um, I have started, I do the same thing for my family. I use the same recurring link, but we're in a group chat with, I think it's 11 people, including my mom. And, you know, if my brothers and sisters shared pictures of their kids, or there was like a meme war going on, or there mm -hmm. were you know, some comments or talking about something else, happy birthday, 
that might be buried, you know, 30 messages ago, like you said. And so if it was like the very last message, you know, and I can see in the group chat that that's right there, I'll say same link as last week, because I can see it. Mm -hmm. But if I can't see it, I'll be like, here it is again. And I just saved it in a email. I mean, I know there's different ways of saving things, but I just have an email. It's like, the family video chat link. So I can remember how to find it each week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my, yeah. my phone is different than if I'm like on my computer, I can't always see the same things. That's right. And one of the things I, I learned too, in making, just making life easier for other people, uh, people, not everybody, and I'm part of the, not everybody, but most people appreciate reminders for things. Yeah. And, uh, I much, I waited much too long. So if, if, uh, you're still waiting, I'm encouraging you not to wait to do an electronic scheduling system that yeah. has been an absolute lifesaver and I have it connected to my zoom. So if they request a zoom meeting, they get the link, they get the schedule. It's all automated. But one thing that I realized is people weren't saving that email and that Zoom link. So a couple of times, an hour or so before a scheduled meeting, they'd say, I never got the Zoom link or I can't find the Zoom link. So now I set it up that they automatically get a reminder an hour before. Some people won't need it. Hopefully it's not bothersome. But for the people who do need it, it just saves them the stress. It saves me having to you know, frantically look to. So just always finding ways, especially since so many people are working from home who haven't done this before. It's been a lot of adjustment. People are, some people are loving it. Some people are really stressed out by it. I think most people are somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. but with so much going on, I think just all those little ways that can end up being big ways to make this time easier for people who are working home, working from home, whether they want to be or not, um, to really just make it the best experience we can. I'm curious, which uh, scheduling program are you using? Because I'm not sure if mine has that reminder feature or not. Yeah, I I use Calendly. Okay, I'm on Acuity Scheduling. Okay. Yep. I just, um, I just went in, it was super easy and you can set the reminder for whatever length of time ahead of time you want it to send out. I'm going to dig into my settings and see if that is a feature because um, I have heard someone say that they, I don't know what percentage they quoted, or I don't even know who, who said it, but basically that they noticed that their interviews or their um, meetings, uh, I think they were doing one-on-one like consultation type meetings, uh, 50% more people actually remember to show up if they sent the reminder the day before. Oh, hmm. and, um, cause you know what, if you know, before, yeah, yeah. And so I, if I remember before I have a meeting to, but I would have to do it manually. I would have to remember to send the reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I almost wonder like with my acuity uh, scheduling, when I confirm a meeting on my calendar, it blocks my calendar. Mm-hmm. It sends a zoom link. But what was I going to say? It doesn't, it doesn't come from my email address. I don't think, I think it shows that it came from acuity scheduling. I'm not sure if yeah. it comes, I'm going to have to check and see what yeah, it looks like remember. from the user. Mm-hmm. Cause like if, um, if someone were to search for my name, right. I hope it would come up from acuity scheduling as well. Yes. So, yeah. It's another way that I could try to make sure that things are easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I bet. I mean, they're a pretty big platform. I bet that there is an option. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I know that when I set up that account, it was before my, I had my April at yes, I work from home.com email set up. So I used like 
one that has my name in it and it's at Mm -hmm. Mm gmail.com. And so I'm not sure if when I'm going to have to do a test and see what it really looks like from the user standpoint, because if they were to look for other emails from April at Mm yesayworkfromhome.com, they might not find that acuity scheduling link. So that's a little homework for me to follow up on. Why don't you talk a little bit about your actual, um, well, journey, how did, why, why did you go from being a manager for 10 years or working in corporate to this, uh, consulting? Is that what you're doing right now from home? Yeah, it's, it's largely training and coaching, uh, more than consulting. Okay. Yeah. I think, um, it, it was a slow building process, but I think there was always a piece of it there. So I had started my career as a classroom teacher. And in that case, um, while we do have supervisors, it's not really like a traditional org chart kind of corporate office kind of uh, setup. So you're so much responsible for your own thing and your own classroom. And it's not a day spent in meetings. And there's just, that's just not how schools operate. And when I went to grad school and um, got my social work degree and was wanting to combine my social work background and my education background, youth development and after-school programming was a really natural fit. So I entered the world of not classroom. And now I did have a supervisor in a traditional sense. And I was a supervisor all of a sudden. And um, when I was hired for that position, the fact that I was a supervisor never really came up. I mean, it it was in the, the job posting. I was aware of it. But all throughout the hiring process, when I was hired, when I was oriented, it just really wasn't talked about. And so all of a sudden, I was a supervisor who had never really done it before, and I didn't know how to do it. And my default was really not to do it. I I sort of took off on this approach of I'll keep doing my thing like I used to do as a teacher, and you do your thing, and you do your thing. And as long as everyone does their thing, everything will be great. And of course, that's not how teams work. And things got really bad really quickly. And I realized I need to figure out how to do this. This isn't just another task on the list. This is my job. This is my role is to is to be a manager for this group. So at the time, and this was now over a decade ago, I didn't really have a path for that. We didn't have trainings at my job. Um, The trainings I was able to find in the field were really cost prohibitive. And so I just scrapped my way to it. I literally went to the library and took out books on managing. I bought a lot of coffees and beers and lunches for friends who were managers and just said, how do you do this? Like, how does this work? And so I put so much time and energy because I realized this is the most important thing I'm doing now, now that I'm supervising other people. And there should be a better way to equip me and other people on how to do this. So I think the idea started really early on. And I stayed in the field and I moved up the ranks, so to speak. And I think after about another decade or so, I was ready. I was ready to impact on a greater scale. I was seeing, particularly in the nonprofit space, people with so much heart and so much dedication to serving clients who need us and rely on us. Um, But I also saw a lot of dysfunction and a lot of waste and a lot of um, 
things that shouldn't be happening. And a lot of that came down to how people were being managed and led. And in many cases, they weren't, or they were being managed and led very poorly. And so I, I wanted, like, I think a lot of people who go out on their own wanted to impact on a greater scale. And maybe I can work with this level of new supervisor and new manager, uh, a lot of programs and especially coachings becoming more and more popular is aimed at that executive, you know, the executive level at the C-suite. And that's great. They should have support too. But people who are just breaking into that space, there's not as much dedicated to them. And, and mm. so that's where I'm at. And, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So like the mid-level managers. The mid-level and just starting out, like maybe mm. not even a manager yet, but what do I need? One of the my most popular trainings I do is uh, what to expect when you're expecting to be a supervisor. So not just waiting until you're there, um, but how can you start to build up some of those skills and and what kind of mindset do you need to take on and really uh, thinking thoughtfully, intentionally, is this a path you want to take? Uh, I have a lot of soapbox issues, one of which is for most people, if they do want to move up, it requires them to be a supervisor. And the research shows that most people, as much as 70% of women and around 60, not quite percent of men don't want managerial positions, but they're being put there uh, sort of as collateral because they do want to move up and have more responsibility and voice and frankly money, but um, they have to take on the, the managerial role in order to get there, which I think is a great disservice. So um, that, right. that's a big, a big soapbox issue. So is there another path towards you know, another path? leadership or the responsibility without necessarily having to be responsible uh, with the, um, with the, for the employees. And like, I think when I worked for Mayo Clinic, I am kind of kicking myself now because I'm, you know, revamping my resume and like thinking, you know, how right now, one of my uh, gigs that I've been doing for the last few years is kind of drying up the English language. Um, teaching online or the, you know, coaching or tutoring online is, is kind of a, it's a field that is fluctuating. And, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of us are teaching students in China and China keeps changing the regulations of who they allow to teach their students. And it's, we're in a volatile period right now. Mm -hmm. Um, when I'm looking at my resume, I'm like, why on earth did I work for Mayo for 17 years yeah. and never get out of the worker beast, you know, yeah. level? I mean, mm -hmm. I had a, I had more education than the manager I did, you know, who was above my supervisor um, yeah. because I had the master's degree and hardly anyone else did. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, I just stayed, you know, in the same spot I came in. Um, and a lot of people do within 10 years, they have a track. And I don't know if they have to be very intentional to be like, okay, this is step one, get to the assistant supervisor. Right. Step two, get to supervisor. Step three, get to manager. Is there another path? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And so um, two things I think that are so important with what you just said. And one is not everybody wants one, not everyone wants to supervise. And two, not everyone necessarily wants to even move into a new position. There's a lot of people who really love what they do. They're sort of the craftsperson, the skill person, the artisan, um, the technician, you know, whatever term you want to use there. And there are 
places that do it. And I think a lot of like attorneys and when you're an attorney, you do your attorney thing and then you get bumped up to associate and you're still doing your attorney thing. And then you become partner and you're still doing your attorney thing. You're still doing your craft without like supervising a group of people. And I actually have heard, which is so inspiring, the Air Force has started doing this thing exactly as you said, where they talk with the people in the ranks to say, which direction do you want to go in? Do you want to be a leader of these men and women? Or do you want to continue to grow in your skill and keep doing that skill um, without having to supervise a team if you don't want to. Uh, this shows up a lot in like coding and computer stuff for people who are really skilled technically that just want to do that work, that they can continue to do that work. So I would say it hasn't necessarily showed up in all spaces yet, but also there's no reason why it couldn't. Um, if you yeah. just love your work and, and, and my work, with teaching, um, you know, a lot of people will leave the classroom to move up and maybe they become a principal, but that's not really what they want to do. They want to be in the classroom. They want to be teaching. So I think we need to be um, a little bit creative. I don't think it takes that much ingenuity to figure out a way to say, I don't want a team. I want to stay where I'm at or maybe learn some new skills with what I'm doing, but I also want increased pay and some increased voice and what we're doing, uh, I think organizations have great ability to do that. Well, it makes me think about when I had my performance, my annual performance review each year, why didn't this conversation come up? Mm -hmm. You know, they always wanted us to uh, go over our, our three goals for the year. And because of the nature of the work that we were in, they were almost always productivity and quality based mm -hmm. and never like, do you want to become, you know, I mean, I would have been, I think the reason that I didn't pursue when they did have an open position for like the assistant supervisor and supervisors is because they had a schedule that wasn't compatible with her life. Mm. You know, they would have required me to work a schedule that wouldn't have worked with my husband's schedule and having the three kids. Yeah. Um, and so I do know that I didn't usually apply. I, I think I applied one time for a supervisor position. Mm -hmm. But I was remembering when my husband was applying for jobs after he finished his grad school, um, he was looking for either physics jobs or engineering jobs. And they have everything classed as, um, or classified as like a level one, level two, level three, mm -hmm. and then the different levels pay differently. Mm -hmm. So based on your experience, if you have 10 years of experience, you are, I don't know, is level three better than level one? I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I mean, and there'd be like a pretty significant pay difference, but you had to qualify. So I think in that field, um, you know, especially engineering and things, technicians, there's different levels of like lead. And yeah, I guess some fields are more conducive to that line of thinking than others. Only to the line of thinking, because again, it can be done in any field, really, if you just apply the same principles. And the second thing you pointed out, which I also hope your listeners are paying attention to is 
Really, one thing I work a lot with my clients on is being your own advocate in the workplace, because if you have the great privilege of working for a supervisor who's looking out for you and your career, and they um, provide all this professional development, and they get you a mentor, and they get you a coach, and they really help provide everything you need, you are a select few. That's not the experience most people have. I'm working on it. That's my greater vision is, is that all supervisors operate this way. But in most cases, you're given supervisors who are kind of doing their own thing and they're just trying to get through the day. And so it's put upon us as the employees to have to speak up and say, I want to be a supervisor. What trainings are available to me? What support is available to me? Um, I wish it weren't that way, uh, but until we get all our supervisors adequately trained, it does require a lot of self-advocacy on our part. Well, and I guess, you know, based on that productivity model that I was, you know, brought up in, I guess, I'm thinking about how a lot of times they would reward the people who had the highest productivity or the best uh, quality or whatever. Um, but they weren't always the most personable people. Like maybe they were just so nose to the grindstone that they were just like able to tune out everything, but they wouldn't have necessarily made a good supervisor because they didn't have the people skills. And so I guess just identifying people early on, like, wow, you know, she's really got a knack with, you know, communicating and building a rapport with people. That would be a good way to identify leaders. Amazing. Exactly. And we and too many organizations continue this old process that you exactly what you just said, you're good at your technical whatever. And so your reward is now to give you a completely different job that you may or may not not want and that you may or may not naturally gravitate to. And I the one thing also that I advocate for is We talk a lot about people being natural leaders. It's not really the case that it's really that people develop leadership skills and they do it when they really want to be leaders. That's the piece that that is missed too much. Most people, if they're given the opportunity for better pay and and more voice, they're going to take it, even if that comes along with something they don't particularly care about, including managing. And that, again, is a disservice. And so when we talk about identifying who these natural leaders are, I, I think that's not the way to go about it. I think the way to identify people who want to be in leadership roles is talking to people and figuring out who's interested first and foremost. Do they have the desire to learn how to be effective at supervising other people? Because it's a skill that's made up of lots of different skills and they're not easy. And in most cases, people who really want to do it and are invested in learning how to do it well are going to succeed at it. Um, And and so you don't have, you know, and I, I think we're slowly letting go of this prototype where the leader is the big boisterous, you know, um, extroverted, uh, humorous kind of personality. Those people, of course, can be good leaders, but it's not required. Uh, And I think you said it perfectly that it's not that you have to have a certain type of personality, but you do have to like working with people and you do have to be personable and you do need to know how to communicate with people. Uh, and if you're just someone who wants to sit at your desk or your computer and, and do that work, then 
being in management is not for you, which is perfectly okay. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see see what you're saying. Um, I'm remembering one of my favorite supervisors was a really quiet lady, but she was a good listener and she cared. You know, I feel like, um, I had another person who came in, she was younger. Um, she maybe had more, um, education, Mm -hmm. but man, she would just talk right over me and she would just keep talking. And I'd be like, you didn't listen to me at all. And so I can see there it going both ways. So definitely the loudest person isn't necessarily the best leader. That's right. Yep. And, and people who maybe haven't been identified throughout their careers and maybe even in their lives, if you go back to school days and who's chosen as class president or who's chosen as the cat as the captain of this or that, we, we have tended to have a very narrow view of who a leader is. And so the, the, the advice I give to the leaders that I work with is be careful about who you're identifying as leader or not, uh, because you're really missing out on some good people. Very often, as you mentioned, those quieter people who uh, maybe people don't think of naturally because they still gravitate to leaders who are a bit more boisterous, but um, people who are invested in helping other people grow, that's what makes you a leader. And then that goes along with lots of hard stuff um, is, are you willing to have delicate, difficult conversations with people? A, A lot, a lot of the leaders I work with, they say, you know, this is something they really struggle with. And they often say, I'm just not a confrontational person, or I just don't like confrontation. And I say, yeah, you and 90% of everybody else. It's, and I, uh, what I go back to all the time is being confrontational. It's not a personality trait. It's a skill and you can learn how to have these conversations, but you have to be willing to want to learn and knowing that the end result is helping your staff grow. And I guess when you're talking about supervising and managing people, oftentimes that's the person you have to go to when, um, when you have like a loss in your family or an illness and you have to be like, I need FMLA, I need time off. I need bereavement. Okay. So a few episodes ago, we talked about FMLA and bereavement Mm -hmm. and I actually said bereavance accidentally. (laughs) And I actually had my editor (laughs) edit it out because I was so embarrassed. (laughs) So now I'm like going to keep saying it (laughs) in my head, but yeah, like, you know, some of the most sensitive, you know, periods of my life were like when a family member was extremely ill and I had to take some time off. Um, um, it was an uncomfortable conversation to have to have. And the people that listen, you know, are good. But then he said like, not just with that, you know, it's, it's fine if you can be understanding and empathetic during someone's, you know, painful period, but also like you are not performing uh, to the standard that we have for this company. You know, how can we help you, you know, keep your job? (laughs) And what I think is, it was, is always a very difficult conversation to me is 
you're a great person with a lot of skills and this job just isn't a fit for you. You know, I, I think a lot of times, particularly in nonprofits, we um, don't ever talk about firing someone unless they do something really egregious. But there's a lot of times where someone's sitting in a position and we know it and they know it, it's just not a fit for what they care about or what they're good at, but we don't want to fire them because they haven't done anything wrong. So that's another area that I work with people People on is how do you graciously have those conversations with people to say, do you feel successful? And I want you to feel successful. So how, how can we make that happen? And I, I hope also, that they'll get the hint. Right. Or, or just be really honest, you know, and, um, and your point about bereavement, I, I want to share because this was such a turning point for me when I said I, it had been bubbling for me for a long time to go out on my own. And largely, um, I was working in places where there was a lot of freedom. The scheduling was, you know, working during the school day, you get out early and you can do your thing working in after school, you have your mornings free. And my last job was a, a kind of traditional office type of job, which just did not sit well with me at all. It was too, it was too restrictive. But um, a couple of months into that position, my uncle passed away. And I had it just, of course, as deaths do, came very quickly. So I had to, you know, make arrangements and he was out of state. I had to get a flight, all this. And uh, my, my boss wasn't in town. So I sent a message and said, hey, I have to take Friday off for my uncle's funeral. And I remember something about a bereavement policy. I'll just take the day for bereavement, whatever. So I come back that Monday, I was literally gone one day and sitting on my desk waiting for me was a photocopy of our bereavement policy. And my boss had highlighted who qualified for the qualify. bereavement policy. Uncles don't qualify. And they wrote uh, uh, something in the margins that said, please understand if, if I make an exception for you, I have to make an exception for everybody. Mind you, there were six people who worked there um, and never had a conversation about it, never talked to me about it. This was how they relayed the information. And I thought, no, thank you. This is not for me. This is not how I want to be communicated with. These are not policies I want to work under that you dictate who is worthy of my grieving. This is not a humane way to work. And I think, I hope, I don't know, April, I'm, and the, the jury's still out. I think this past year plus has opened up some of those doors of humanity. I think in other cases it hasn't, but I do hope it started to shed a little bit of light for some people that of course we're human beings first and we need work that supports our lives, that supports our work and, and um, we need more freedom in how we're living our lives. Yeah. I know when I'm looking for, um, you know, I'm kind of weighing my heart. Like, do I want to, I have, I have an avenue that I could go down that, um, would allow me to continue to do, um, my work from home and freelance. Um, and then I've been thinking, well, maybe I could join the corporate world again, mm -hmm. but I'm like literally Googling which companies have flexible, open, you know, paid time off policies, which, you know, the best work from home jobs, you know, in terms of benefits, because that, that benefit package would be basically, um, once you have had control of your own schedule, it's really hard to go back to that, you know, 
inflexible mm-hmm. um, and having to pass around that vacation calendar and be like, well, I'm the lowest, mm-hmm. um, you know, ranking person here. So I, I get last pick and it's not going to be Christmas mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever holiday, you know, I, you know, or the week that my family has rented a cabin, um, I'm not going to be able to go, you know, and I like being able to manage my own schedule a little bit more. Yeah. And I remember when I, when I was in that last job, that was like a nine to five sort of thing. And I, I remember, cause I was raised by two teachers too. And so I just didn't understand like the corporate schedule and how this all worked. And I remember calling my friend who has always worked a nine to five. And I'm like, how do you get your life done? Like, how do you go to the bank and how do you get your dry cleaning? And I, like, this doesn't even make any sense to me. And I felt very, um, I think resentful, if I'm being honest, where I had to say, hey, I'm submitting a sick time request because I need to get my six month cleaning at the dentist. It just felt very infantilizing and it felt very, um, yeah, like not the environment I wanted to work in. Right. And we even um, had to schedule our lunch time. Like oh. we had to coordinate with other people and then get permission if we wanted to extend our lunch by 30 minutes. And I was yeah. like, I'm over it. Yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about your actual home office? Yes. Um, you're, you're pretty much looking at it. I, I, um, I don't know. I want, I don't think I want to say I'm proud to say, uh, yeah. And so I do have an actual desk and sort of an office like space in my home. I have literally never used it. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it was the thing that if I started using it, it would just be fine. Uh, I, I think I, I kind of rationalize like everything's on the floor. I'm on the bathroom's here, the kitchen's here, my, you know, it's cooler down here in the summer, it's hot upstairs. Um, And so when I started doing like presentations and such, I I had a much prettier background than I do now. The Baltimore is very famous for having a lot of exposed brick. You can see a little bit of it there, which is so beautiful. And so I would lug all my stuff to a certain position in my living room and set up the selfie light and set up the speakers and set up the computer. And that's where I do my work when people, other people could see me. And as the pandemic wore on and on, I said, I'm not doing this every time I have a meeting. So I I'm literally on my couch. Uh, This is not the best thing to work for other people, uh, but this is where I've set it up. I have my computer sitting on top of an old box. Uh, I have a little uh, like TV tray table that it's sitting on. And this is where I do my work. So maybe someday I'll gravitate to the desk. I don't know. It's just sitting there waiting for me. But um, this, this has worked for me. So I've continued to do that. I always am saying, you know, ergonomics aren't sexy. I get it, but you feel sexy if you feel good. So I guess my only concern, I don't care if it's a box. I don't care if it's a TV tray. (laughs) Are you, are you comfortable where you're sitting? That's so I've gotten this part down because it's at a good level. I was going through a period. It wasn't to the point of carpal tunnel, but it was to a period where like my hands were hurting. So that, but I, but certainly the back support sitting on a couch has been terrible. So you bring up a valid point. I appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, Yeah, that has not been great for sure. Um, And even when you have to lift up your hands to type on a, like, I know you probably have the camera angle nice and high, but if you have to 
lift up your hands. Mm-hmm. So like it's perfectly great for recording, but um, I get schlepping your stuff from here to there is a pain yes. in the butt. I was trying to okay. do the same thing. I was trying to record downstairs in my living room, mm-hmm. but we had five people home, you know, like my mm-hmm. husband and my three kids were also home and yeah. the living room is open to the kitchen, open to the upstairs. Yeah. And I'd be like, you have to be really quiet because I'm going to be recording. <laughs> okay. And they hated it. They mm-hmm. hated being, you know. Uh, <laughs> put back up in the back bedroom so they could, you know, be quiet for two hours. And then I would like try to keep recording and recording. And I hated myself and I hated how I sounded and I hated how I looked yeah. and I'd record it 300 <laughs> times. And there'd be like two days of recording, like a five minute thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally I'm like, you know what? I'm in a closet. I don't oh. ever have to move anything. I am literally in a closet. Um, this is just a curtain in front of my wall and my bathroom is just to one side and my shelving is to the other side and everything is here. Like mm-hmm. I can unplug my laptop and I also sit on the couch when I yep. need a breather, mm-hmm. um, from being in this closet with no window. Um, so I definitely do sometimes work at the couch as well, but I have to still be mindful of how I'm sitting and for how long. Yes. So, um, maybe keep that in mind. Cause if you mm-hmm. are lifting up your hands that can create a lot of so- shoulder tension. And the other thing that, um, I didn't realize until, uh, not that it was too late. I probably should have realized it a little earlier, but because I was doing everything in front of the computer. So before even working from home, I was on my computer a lot, but then I would go out and do my training or do my program evaluation, what have you, or I'd go to a meeting in person. You know, I wasn't just staring at a screen all day. Mm -hmm. And then at nighttime, I might go for a walk. I might meet a friend for a drink. I might go to a comedy show. And, and so what I was realizing is not only was I working all day, then when my work day was done, then I was watching something. So it was watching a comedy show or watching a show, or, you know, a movie or whatever. And the eyes, like the strain on my eyes was not something I should have thought about it ahead of time. I didn't, I just mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and so that that has been something I've had to be really conscious of both in terms of the movement and getting off the couch and just, even if it's to go to the mailbox or something to just get, but just to stop looking at the screen. And Mm -hmm. one thing I had to do, and I encourage other people to do, especially a few months into the pandemic, everyone was zoom crazy or, or video call crazy. And very quickly I said, can we just do a phone call instead of a zoom unless it absolutely has to be a zoom. Um, and then that way I could walk around the house, walk around the block or just mm-hmm. not close my eyes even, but just not look at a screen for the duration of the call that helped a lot. Yeah. And I've learned that even, um, with a call versus a zoom, If I'm holding that phone physically, Mm -hmm. I'm still straining my arm, holding it. And so I have started to utilize my, um, my husband gave me a wireless headset for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then I also got some Christmas money and I, um, use the AirPods and that gives me like, if I am on a phone call, I can kind of be tidying up or, um, I mean, as long as I don't have kids screaming through the house, I can, uh, which I do often, (laughs) um, walk around a little bit or even just stand up. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit more awkward for me to stand when I am on camera mm-hmm. without putting a big box underneath to lift it up. Cause then it's like up my nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Up my nose. Yeah. yeah but I was, 
Go oh, ahead. sorry. I was going to say I do have um, the head, the wireless headphones. And so that has been one of the greatest things. I did have it before for my walks and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. So I did have those before, but for those phone calls, yes, it's been a saving grace. Yeah. And I have a corded headset that I use for teaching. Um, they require a USB um, wired yeah. one, um, which I can, as I actually got one with an extra long cable so I can pretty much walk into my bathroom and get like a glass of water while I'm still connected, but mm-hmm. it still feels restrictive. Like it's harder for me to turn around and reach behind me. So I'm really thankful. For, I think that's one of my favorite um, things is just to have switched to the Bluetooth. Um, so you've got your, are you working in your living room or are you working from a couch in your office? So it's in my living room. Yep. And do you have um, other people in the house with you? I don't. Yeah. So I, um, that makes it easier in terms of being able to stay put, but my, even though I don't like schlepping my stuff around ultimately just for me, it's not that bad because my computer's always sitting here anyway. I just have to prop it up and my selfie light and my microphone isn't quite as fancy as yours. So I can just disconnect them and take them off. And then, um, if I'm watching a show or doing something not work-related, that that the transition's pretty easy. So as long as your cat isn't able to knock things over, because I do have a cat that ate one of my cords one time. <laughs> so she's funny. She, yeah, I've heard horror stories about cats. She doesn't knock things over, but something happened with the selfie light where I moved it and I didn't, I think she didn't realize I was the one moving it and she did come up and knock it over and break it. So I had to get another one, but knock on wood, that's the only, (laughs) the only thing I've seen so far, but the, you know, I think people have been very gracious in terms of like pets and kids and, and the, the someone ringing the doorbell kind of thing. But one thing I didn't really notice until I started recording, because I do feel some pressure to record in a nice, quiet space. When I was doing creating my virtual courses, I, I think I had blocked out how noisy things are living in a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you just get used to it. But I felt I used to call it the symphony of the city. So the second I would press record, the construction started, the garbage truck came by, there's constantly sirens, my neighbors are yelling, and there would be, you know, stretches of hours I'd almost be in tears because I couldn't get a quiet space. And I, you know, this room was too echoey and this, and my equipment's not that great. I did invest in some equipment. It's not top notch. Um, but there was some frustrating moments with recording, really trying to get that, that quiet moment. So we talked before we started recording today about the, um, the AirPods mm-hmm. that they don't really make great, um, they don't really make great microphones. Mm-hmm. They are great. At, I have the AirPod pros or whatever they call them. And they have that noise canceling feature. So I can mm-hmm. block out all those other sounds. So I can hear very clearly, even if there's a lot of noise around me. But mm-hmm. when I'm teaching, one of the benefits of using that USB um, headset is this is an older version of the Logitech one, but mm-hmm. it has a noise canceling feature on the microphone. Uh-huh. So if there is that, maybe like a kid screaming at the door would still mm-hmm. bleed through. <laughs> but as far as like the other ambient noise would more mm-hmm. or less just be suppressed without oh. it being too obvious. Mm-hmm. And so if you're ever recording and you're not like necessarily face to camera and you don't feel awkward about wearing like mm-hmm. a headset, you might want to think about using a microphone that has a noise canceling feature 
not so, so much the headset, but the microphone Yeah. Um, to help blend in or to, you know, how do I say it? You know, to weed it all out, to, yes. uh, to block it out is what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, that helps for like the distant dogs barking and that that truck now like yes. if your um cat is screeching you know yeah. it will still come through thank you i appreciate that and uh, just what else the, oh, go just ahead the side i wanted to share that one so when i went out on my own uh, i did have this vision of supporting supervisors I, i'm really passionate about it and i'm also passionate about a lot of things and so one of the great attractors to me of going out on my own was building out this opportunity to do lots of those different things i call it my quilted life and uh since I left full-time teaching, I I never wanted to leave teaching. I wanted to leave full-time teaching, but I absolutely love being a teacher. So I've had the great opportunity to be an adjunct professor. But what I wanted to share with you as a connection point is I'm also an adult ESL teacher, which I adore. I had spent almost four years in South Korea teaching ESL, uh, and I really, really love continuing to do that. So I wanted to share that similarity we had. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. I yeah. love the adults. Actually, I have my master's degree in adult education. Oh, okay. um, and so yeah. I, I feel like I gravitate more towards that end. I definitely teach the three-year-olds and the five-year-olds mm-hmm. and the 10-year-olds. And, and I, especially being the oldest of 10 kids, I've always had the you know, a very wide range of ages in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's easy for me to continue to have that rapport with everybody, but I don't necessarily know that younger kids slang these days, <laughs> but yeah, the adults is really fun. Are you doing that still or? Yeah. So I work through a local nonprofit here and they um, went all virtual, maybe even in the fall, we haven't decided yet. So I do one class a semester, sometimes two. So it's just enough to still be in it, but Um, You know, it allows me time and space to work on my other things, too. But just staying connected to that, I really appreciate. And I had the opportunity. I've taught all kinds of different levels. And this last semester, I taught the highest level. And that was really fascinating. It was like a whole different way of teaching to teach uh, with that level of English. So I really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, I I hope to forever be teaching in some capacity. I I just really love everything about it. When you were talking about being in the classroom earlier, I wasn't entirely sure if it was like um, a K through 12 classroom or like a employee education classroom? Yeah, I started as the K-12 teacher. I was a high school social studies teacher. So that was the beginning of my education journey. And then when I went overseas to teach ESL, I started at like an English after school academy. So it was kids, um, not as young as three, but I think we had probably started at like the eight, nine, 10 into high school. Uh, And I did that. And then I taught at a university in Korea. So I guess technically adults, they are so young, but they're in that just becoming adult stage. Uh, So I did that. And then now um, I teach in a classroom at a university in my adjunct work for social work. And then through my nonprofit, that is... um, the school is an arm of a bigger nonprofit. Uh, When I was doing my uh, field experience for my master's degree, I observed in three different settings. It was a university's um, English language Institute. And then if they could graduate from that, they could go into the 
bachelor's program. And then if they finished like the fifth level, they could go into the master's program at the university. Mm-hmm. And then I was also at a community college and, and then a community center. Wow. Um, but at the community center, it really was a lot of doctors and engineers and highly educated people mm-hmm. who were just coming to the States to work and just wanted to improve their language skills for communication purposes. Yeah, um, we the have workplace. We have a very interesting mix. So we have a lot of people. Um, Baltimore is a sanctuary city and we have a lot of refugees here. And so we get connected with a lot of people who are coming here from Syria and Sudan mm-hmm. and all kinds of different places. And, and so that's sort of one pocket of who we serve. And then because we have Johns Hopkins here, which is one of the biggest hospitals in the country, We have a lot of people, particularly from East Asia, who come over for a couple of years to do um, some research or do a Mm -hmm. residency or something. And um, somehow their spouses caught wind of us. And and so then we have this other pocket of of Johns Hopkins spouses, if you will, who take our classes. Generally, they have a pretty high level of English anyway. And then they're here while their spouses are here for a couple of years. Um, So so it's interesting the, the different people were right well and actually probably was a very 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 similar circumstance in rochester minnesota because that's where mayo clinic was is and we also had a a pretty big refugee population as well i'm not quite sure why if it's Mm -hmm. considered a sanctuary city or not but there was so um it just depended you know like the people who were just fresh in um versus had studied for several years at a university level you know they would be at different levels but yeah Uh, Why don't you talk about who uses your services? Are you working locally with people or are you offering um, your, you said you've made some virtual courses. Is that available to others, you know, outside of your area? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, I don't want to process everything that happened over this past year and try to force it into something positive. I think it's important to recognize uh, the deep challenges and loss and grief that many people have experienced. And I think there are some um, learnings that we we can take with us and some lessons. Uh, One of which for me is I have had the ability to expand my business now being 100% virtual. Previously, I was 0% virtual, so all of my work was local. And by local, we call it the DMV over here, which is the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. I might jump up to Pennsylvania for something or jump down in North Carolina for something. But for the most part, I was working in this area. And once everything went virtual, I had the opportunity to speak at conferences all over the place. I spoke in Arizona uh, earlier in October of last year, I believe it was. I spoke in Nevada. I spoke in North Dakota. So that's been really wonderful. And also had the opportunity to participate in a lot of conferences. I went to conferences in Alaska and Hawaii and all over the place. Uh, And I also have been working with clients who live in these different places. I have a group I've been working really intensely with in Massachusetts. And um, so yeah, so it's opened up all these possibilities. So everything I offer currently 
I offer it virtually. That includes my coaching. It includes my trainings. It include, includes my retreats. And now I have this catalog of growing courses. I have five built out so far um, that are all virtual and are certainly open to everybody. Uh, go ahead and just tell us where we can find those. Yes. So it's on Thinkific, which is, uh, there's lots of course platforms. People are, uh, I find tend to be a little more familiar with uh, platforms like Udemy, which is like a big catalog of courses that you can search on. Thinkific is more of a learning management system. So it doesn't have that catalog where you can search necessarily. But as we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, trying to make things as easy as possible for people to find. So I have my website, which is katherinespinney.com. I'm also on social media with Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, I also have a link tree. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways you can find what I'm doing. Um, it's all on my website is access to my courses. Any of my social media links back to my courses. If you put, if you look online for Catherine and spinny and maybe if you type in think if it course something might come up I haven't tried that specifically but um, you can certainly get to my courses through lots of different avenues and I recently launched a free mini course. So I welcome everyone to start there, people who are just getting to know me. There's a lot of courses out there. And um, as you know, too, April, as a teacher, personality does come into how people connect with you or not. And I always want people to feel good about any way they're investing in themselves. So I have created a free mini course. This is specifically about leading successful one-on-one -on -one meetings with your staff. So if you're a supervisor who struggles with that or maybe has been avoiding that, you can sign up. It's 100% free. And then I have different levels of pricing for different courses. But I have other ones um, that are on giving and receiving effective feedback. I have ones that are, my big signature course is called From Struggling Supervisor to Thriving Leader. That's a much more intense course. And then I have a course specifically for leaders in the after school space as well. So it sounds like you have uh, provided uh, for others the thing that you felt was lacking in your own training. Absolutely. That, that's the vision. And that's, that is my hope. Uh, you know, and I have shared that my target and what I really like, who I'd like to work with best is people before they even step into that managerial role. But who ends up being my clients very often is people who have been managers for sometimes decades, <laughs> uh, certainly years. And they find themselves in places like I was where they say, I don't know what I'm doing. And I became a manager without any of this training, without any of this support, and I want to do it well, and I just don't know how. So I am open to working with people in all walks of their managerial journey. I work with executive directors. I, I work at all levels. I, my goal is exactly what you said, is to help make people's paths a lot easier than mine was. And ultimately, you know, if I'm being really honest, making people's paths as employees easier and more enjoyable too. I've been on the receiving end of amazing leadership and I've been on the receiving end of really lousy leadership. And when you're 
on the receiving end of lousy leadership, it really clouds your entire working experience. And I, I don't want that for anybody. And I think employee retention is the goal of all organizations and the happier the employees are, the longer they'll stay. Amen. And that that's, you know, and I try to, it's, most organizations are receptive, some that, that are still a little hesitant. I do bring it back to money if they're concerned about money. And I'll say, here's your retention rate. Here's how much this is costing you. And here's how much you save by holding on to your staff. You're absolutely right. Retention is the key. And I think what organizations are experiencing now for better or worse, is it is an employee's market that employees have a lot more leverage than they are used to having to say, I'm not working at this place anymore, or I'm only going to stay if, or I'm out of here. I'm going to look for a job that does support me and does give me what I need. So I'm hoping organizations are listening and responding to that. So I want to give you opportunity to speak to managers, supervisors, and leaders, uh, what advice would you give them, especially keeping in mind the virtual workforce, the, the teleworkers and the, um, the contractors and freelancers that may be working with? Managing is hard and almost nobody knows how to do it naturally. So if you are a manager who is struggling like I was, I want you to uh, take off the guilt because it's not your fault that you've been put in the position that you're in. But my challenge to you is that it is your responsibility now that you're in this position to do the best you can with it. So hopefully you're working in an organization that's willing to support you. You might have to do the legwork to get that support. Um, It's great if an organization says, Here's a leadership training. We're going to pay for it. We're going to sign you up. We're going to do the legwork. More often than not, you're going to need to be the one to say, hey, I heard about this virtual course on this podcast that I'm interested in taking. Um, I'm going to sign up for this. Do you approve the funding? Or I found this coach I want to work with or this class I want to take. But um, in most cases, you're not going to figure it out on your own. And so I do encourage you to seek support and try out different kinds of support. Uh, On my website, I have lots of free resources there too. I have a pretty extensive blog at this point with, I think I'm getting close to 200 posts on there. So yes, there's lots Mm -hmm. of ways. Um, Trainings are great and coaching is invaluable and conferences are great, but there are lots of managerial podcasts and there's blogs and there's books and there's mastermind groups and there's all kinds of ways for you to start exploring how to develop yourself as a leader and what ways you really respond to. You know, I went to the library the other day. I I had a whole bunch of books I wanted to find and um, some of them were on management or um, HR related things. And I was looking at Amazon and I was like, man, if I get all five of them, I'm going to be spending, you know, well over $150. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the library has them. And I looked and they do, they have even like the most new editions, uh, you yes. know, the 2021 version of what color is your parachute or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, they didn't necessarily always have them in my home library, but they could, you know, within a day or two, I can request it and it will be there. Um, and so, you know, you don't even have to spend your own money. A lot of these resources are available. 
Yeah, that's right. And one of the things I'm doing now, we're just wrapping up, but we have uh, two more months. So people are welcome to join, but I've been running uh, for the it will be six months in total. It started in February, a leadership book group. And once a month we meet and we choose a, a different book every month and we talk about that book. And it's a great way to, for me to, to stay on top of my reading, to make sure that I'm doing my part and to be able to connect with other leaders because it can be really isolating uh, sometimes to be in that position. But, but reading these leadership books is one of many really great ways. And, uh, April, as you said, you don't have to spend your money. Everything we've chosen is very easily and readily available in libraries, which is where most of the people in the group have gotten their books. And um, so there's lots of support out there. It can be overwhelming, like anything we have to make a choice on. There's so many choices out there. I'm always happy to talk with people to see if I might be a good fit to support them. And if not, I have a really strong referral network that I'm always happy to share. And if you do work for an employer, they have a budget for training and education. And so, like you said before, go ahead and ask, you know, could I be reimbursed for this or could you foot the bill? Yes. And I say this a a lot, particularly in the nonprofit space, because we often go back to budget. And in many cases, we are working with really tight budgets. And at the same time, I have gone to many a conference, either as a participant or a speaker, that are held at $250 a night resorts. The registration fee is $600. Like people are spending money. And conferences are great. I, I speak at a lot. I have a lot coming up that I'm excited. I'm going to Michigan next month. And as I said, I'll be in Arizona and then Kansas City. Um, so I love conferences. They can be expensive. And so if conferences aren't in your budget, there's also lots of other ways. But most places will have some version of a professional development budget. And I highly encourage you to take advantage of that. Well, and because of the pandemic, um, a lot of these conferences might, you can always ask, you know, I cannot make it in person. Will it be live streamed? Will I be able to um, attend at least a few sessions virtually? Yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm hoping, one of the positive things that comes out of this time. So all the conferences I've spoken at, yeah, I haven't done an in-person one yet. The September one in Michigan is my first one that is scheduled to be in person. We'll wait and see about that. Um, But I have a call with them next week. And that's one of the questions I'm going to ask. Will you also be streaming for people who can't make it? I'm, I'm hoping that's a pretty easy accommodation that conferences look at going forward. Even if the conference fee itself would still apply, saving on the the resort fees and the hotel room or whatever, the travel would still help people save money. Absolutely. Yep. Catherine, can you please spell out your name? Cause I know it's your website and you have Catherine with a K. Yes. Yes. So I'm Catherine with a K. Uh, My mom has always told me there's 24 ways to spell Catherine and mine is the right one. Uh, But, you know, I I always get angry responses from other Catherines with that. But my last name is Spinny, spin like a top. So it's S-P-I-N-N-E-Y. So if you, uh, my website is CatherineSpinney.com. And if you just put in Catherine Spinney, you'll see all my work stuff pop up. Um, and, and if you're a social media person, you can find me again on Twitter, 
Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the places. All the places. Yes. (laughs) I haven't made it to TikTok. I think, I think that's, I think I've stopped doing new platforms for now. I'll, I'll never say never, but I I gave it, I gave it a try. uh, Okay. Good effort for a few, um, maybe weeks or a month. And, um, I, don't have enough new content to keep it up like every day. Okay. Like I think yeah. they recommend, but oh boy. Well, thank you, Catherine. Let's call it. I got to go bring a kid to a doctor. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to your audience for, for listening to this. Uh, I, I just want to send lots of continued encouragement to invest in yourself, to do this managerial thing. Well, uh, it, it is hard. You're not alone and there is lots of support out there. So thank you so much. That's perfect. All right. This has been April Malone with Catherine Spinney, and this is Yes, I Work From Home. We'll see you next time. Bye.